Amen. Thank you, Jonathan. So good morning. My name, I didn't introduce myself before, is Drew. Uh, I am a pastor here at Redeemer, and it's good to be with you this morning. We are finishing, actually, today uh, a series that we've been doing through the latter part of Isaiah's prophecy uh, from chapters 40 to 66. We've been hitting the highlights, and we come this morning to the very end of uh, that section of Scripture uh, to the culmination of everything that Isaiah has said to this point in chapters 65 and 66. So if you have a Bible and you'd like to follow along with me, you can see there we're going to begin with the first couple of verses and then skip around a little bit in chapter 65, settling in verse 17 through 25, and then the first two chapters of Isaiah 66. It'll be on the screen behind me. It's on your screen if you're watching at home, uh, and it's also printed for you in the worship folder. So let's read together these uh, verses. If you would read along with me, Isaiah the prophet says, I was ready, speaking for the Lord, I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am to a nation that was not called by my name. I spread out my hands all the day to the rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices. But you who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, who set a table for fortune and fill cups mixed with wine for destiny, I will destine you to the sword And all of you shall bow down to the slaughter, because when I called, you did not answer, and when I spoke, you did not listen, but you did what was evil in my eyes, and chose what I did not delight in. And then he goes on to say, For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy, and her people to be a gladness, and I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die at a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build or inhabit and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain. Or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are not yet speaking, I will hear. And the wolf and the lamb shall graze together, and the lion shall eat straw like an ox. The dust shall be the serpent's food, for they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me, and what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. So all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. This is the word of the Lord. There's a lot there. Right? It's a shame that we only have 30 minutes or so to talk about this. Let me ask a question. If you were king for the day, If you were made king for the day, because be honest, that's a lot of our greatest dreams, right? If you were made king for the day, what changes would you make? (laughs) There you go. I want you to ponder that. If you were made king for the day, what changes would you make? Today is the last Sunday in the liturgical calendar, the Sunday before Advent. It's referred to the Feast of Christ the King. To remember that Jesus Christ came from heaven to earth and then he went back to heaven from the earth and he is right now at this moment reigning over all things for the sake of his people. So being made king, what changes would he make? 
Well, that's what this passage in Isaiah 65 and 66 is all about. And we could boil it down to one word, really. Everything that's said here, really everything that Isaiah has to say. Really, if you want, everything the Bible has to say from beginning to end to one word, and that word would be kingdom. Do you see that that's the title of the sermon this morning? Just a word? Kingdom. That word kingdom is the central message of the scriptures. The gospel, which we talk about every week, is the gospel of the kingdom. The good news that God's power and love have broken into the world in Jesus Christ. That his life, his death, and his resurrection, to borrow an image from N.T. Wright, is fresh grass growing through the concrete of the corruption and decay of the old world. And so we want to look at this text just through the lens of that one word, kingdom. And as you do, you're going to see that that word describes a number of things here. It describes the telos, and I'll, I'll explain that word, the telos of God's work in the world, but also the scope and the effects and the agents of it. And there's actually more, but that's all we have time for this morning. So the telos and the scope and the effects and the agents of God's work in the world. You'll see each of those as the, as the points of the outline that I've given you on the back of that insert where I just read from the scriptures. So let's just walk through the text together because we want to use our time well this morning. First, let's see that this word kingdom describes the telos of God's work in the world. And that word telos just means the finish line, the end of the story. In other words, God is taking the world somewhere. God is taking the world somewhere. And kingdom is the one word description of the world's destination at the end of time. For Christians, when Jesus comes back from heaven to earth, and now ends and then begins. That's what we mean by that word. When he comes back from heaven to earth and now ends and then begins. Now, that idea, just on the face of it, is at odds with a couple things that we come up against culturally. The first is materialism. And by materialism, I mean the belief that there's nothing beyond the physical world, that there is, in fact, no story, that there's no beginning and no end, that there's no inherent meaning to life, the circle, you, you know, is the symbol of paganism. Did you know that? The circle. Life is not linear according to this. It's, it's circular. We're going nowhere. We're gaining nothing. The only, the, ancient, the only stories the ancient Greeks knew how to tell were tragedies because they, they deeply believed that life was good and bad and good and bad, but bad always seemed to have the last word. Bad always came. So, and so they told stories like that. And, and that's not just the ancient worldview. Modern secularism is, is exactly the same, this idea of materialism. But there's another thing it comes up against, this idea that the world's going, being taken somewhere, that God is, God, there's a destination that God has aimed us at. It also is kind of opposed to pantheism. And by pantheism, I mean the idea that, that God is kind of embedded in the natural world. We live... Because we live solely in an imminent frame now, we don't believe in anything transcendent, but the problem is, is that we've been made for transcendence, and so we can't stop ourselves from longing for and looking for transcendence, and so we end up looking for transcendence within the imminence. And it's a strange thing to watch happen in our culture. It's one of the ways you'll see, you'll see floating around this idea, it's usually romanticized, that there's some kind of plan that's unfolding, that there are signs that are guiding us along the way, but it's the universe that's doing this, right? Have you heard this language? I was, uh, my daughter, I get made fun of for this kind of stuff, so I don't bring it up a whole lot, but my daughter was watching uh, an old John Cusack, and you know, I'm a child of the 80s and 90s, so John Cusack, hello, like it's, hello, you with me? Somebody like, don't make me feel all alone up here, guys, come on. Like, say anything, right? Say anything with, like, the, 
the thing up here, and I, I figured out my wife had never seen that movie, and about I just about died the other day. But nevertheless, so everything John Cusack is is in my fa- my uh, my generation has to watch. Well, one of my favorite movies that he was in is a movie called Serendipity, and uh, it's twenty years old. So spoiler alert, but it's your own fault if you haven't seen the movie by by now. Okay, so I'm sorry. Just I can't do anything about that. But it, it, it's a fast. It's really a fascinating movie. It's it's a movie really about. Um, free will versus determinism and you know and this idea that life is is this this um, you know this tapestry that's being woven together and there's all this really romantic language about it but really what it boils down to is that there's something that's guiding us along the way and so these two people meet and there's an instant connection but she's kind of kooky and she has this idea that you got to give yourself over to the universe and let the universe take you wherever you want and so instead of just going with the relationship, she writes his name on a $5 bill. She writes her name in a, a book that, that she was reading at the time, and, and they cast them out into the universe. And if the universe wants them to be together, then they'll, then they'll you know, find their way back to them. And it's this really romantic, sweet, whatever. But in the meantime, time goes by. He's getting married. She's getting married. Uh, and he goes to his um, reception, and it's obviously still haunted by this by this woman that he's met in the past, and his fiance gives him a groom gift, and it's the book that he's been look. She says every time we go into a used bookstore, you're always looking at this book. It's a first edition. I thought you'd want it, and he opens up the cover, and sure enough, there's the name of the girl, uh, you know. And so it's just this right. And so, and what happens is, is his best friend, who's a writer for the New York Times in the obituary section, it, 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 the, it, it's charm. It's charming, and it makes a believer out of everybody. And his best friend. Uh, in lieu of his best man speech, he says, you know, he decided to just write his obituary. And in, and in his obituary, he described this lead character, John Cusack's, Cusack's character, as like this. He said, he courageously clung to the belief that life is not merely a series of meaningless accidents or coincidences, but rather it is a tapestry of events that culminate in an exquisite, sublime plan. Now, that sounds like providence. But what if you don't believe in God, but you still cling to the belief that there's some plan that's unfolding. Well, then you say, you know, it's the universe. In Star Wars, it's the force, right? In serendipity, it's fate. And it is in Isaiah too, that's interesting, right? Look at verses 11 and 12. Isaiah starts to mock, the Lord starts to mock people by, he says, but you who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, who set a table for fortune and fill cups of mixed wine for destiny. And by personifying fortune and destiny, Isaiah's mocking them. He, he gives them names. Fortune and destiny are names for the belief that life is somewhat fixed by forces beyond us, but those forces are not personal. They don't have a name. Which is interesting, right? So where does that leave you? And that's really... That's really what the movie wrestles with, which is why it's, it's, a, it's an, a fun movie to watch. And ultimately, the movie fails because it doesn't answer the question it can't. But see, here's the thing. If materialism is true, then all that's left is despair. If pantheism is true, then the moral imperative, and this comes out in the movie, but you'll see it all over the place. The moral imperative then is resignation. Just resignation. Just let it give yourself over to whatever the universe wants to do with you, right? I was walking into Publix the other day. <laughs> So I'm so embarrassed to even admit this, but 
Um, I was walking into Publix the other day, and I, I don't know, my kids were probably singing it or something, but I, I found myself just singing the chorus from the Florida Georgia Line song. You know, if it's meant to be, it'll be, so baby, just let it be. <laughs> I'm just walking into Publix. Have, does this happen, right? And this is just, I'm like, why am I singing this song? I don't even believe that. Like, I don't even believe what the song's saying. Like, we're, so I'm embarrassed to admit that Florida, Florida Georgia Line was in my head because that shouldn't be. But I, I, and I have no idea where it came from, but that, that song, so it's just, the chorus says, if it's meant to be, it'll be. So baby, just let it be. I mean, think about it, right? It's a toast to fate. It's a toast to fate. If it's meant to be, it will. So just let it be, don't fight it. There's nothing you can do about it anyway. Become a believer, right, is what it's saying. Now, here's where I really went off the rails this week because I was so just curious about that that I looked up the music video. <laughs> <laughs> to the song, yeah, it was, that was, yeah. I, obviously I need more to do, uh, and, and what's great is it's great, now I don't encourage you to go watch this, but the, in the video, it's a scantily clad woman that's hitchhiking her way through the desert, because of course that happens every day, right, I mean that's just like normal everyday life, and it's so ridiculous, so ridiculous, she's riding around in the back of a pickup truck, opening herself to the universe, following the signs, And it's so romantic, right? No, it's ridiculous. Christianity is opposed to materialism and pantheism. It says the world is not all there is, this world. It's not all there is. There's a personal reality beyond the physical world. There's a personal reality, right? Beyond the physical world, who is intimately involved in the world and with each of us. Life is not merely a series of meaningless accidents. It's a sequence of meaningful threads that are being woven together into something beautiful, even the bad stuff. There's a telos, we're not trapped in the circle of life. Life is a story. There's a happily ever after. There's a rest. There's a home. There's a good that will go on forever and never turn back to bad. And that means life is full of meaning, not despair. And it's full of calling, not resignation. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Secondly, the word kingdom not only describes the telos of God's work in the world, it also describes the scope God is taking the world somewhere, and that place, that destination, where we're headed is far bigger than we can possibly imagine. Now, Isaiah 65 begins with Israel's return from Babylonian exile. We've talked about this. The people were, Isaiah is forecasting the day when the people have been carted off in exile, but then the Lord is going to come and bring them back. But as you read, you realize there's so much more than just that, that historical reality going on here. Because look at verses 17. He starts by saying, behold, he says twice there. And that word means pay attention because this is a surprise. God's about to say something that they were not expecting. Behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered nor come to mind. Now he says the same thing in 66 verse 22. If you have a Bible and you can look at the very end of Isaiah's prophecy, he says, uh, he talks about the new heavens and the new earth there. It's echoed in the New Testament. We read it from Second Peter this morning, just a minute ago. We are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And of course, at the end of Revelation, at the end of our scriptures, because it is the end of the story, John, the apostle, writes about seeing a new heaven and a new earth. And that the first heaven and the first earth have passed away. So what does all the language mean? Well, for one, for one, it means that salvation, when Christians use this word to describe what God is doing, salvation isn't limited to God rescuing his people from Babylon. And therefore, it's not limited to you either. <laughs> God is not just out to save you 
so that you can go to heaven when you die. The goal isn't to escape the world and go to heaven. The goal is to see the world remade into heaven. That's what God's promising, that in Jesus Christ, heaven has already come down into the world. That's what Christmas is all about. We'll start talking about that next week. But Jesus came preaching the kingdom come. In other words, what Isaiah is describing here has already become in his ministry and in his presence on the earth. Now, we like to think like individuals, but this is so much bigger than you, so much bigger than me. This is about a new heaven and a new earth. And I love there in verse 17 that the hard parts of our experience in this world are called the former things. Isn't that great? He doesn't name them. He doesn't describe them in detail. He just, he just gives them a name, the former things. All that's wrong about the world at least as we know it, is on its way out. It will soon be forgotten. Everything sad is going to come untrue. The most painful parts of life will one day not even come to mind. Isn't that great? I'm talking about sin and death, of course. Sin referring to our rebellion against our maker. Instead of living within the limits that he has assigned to us, we grasp for God-likeness for ourselves, which is the root cause of every evil in the world. We do not tremble at his word, chapter 66, verse 2. We despise it, or we just ignore it. We choose the ravaged path of independence, not comprehending that we're dragging the entire creation along with us. This, of course, is Genesis chapter 3, but it's still happening all the way up to today. It's happening right now. And the wake of our sin, the wake of our choices of rebellion against our maker is emotional and psychological distress, fractured relationships and families and friendships and in society in general, work that lacks meaning and joy, political unrest, even violence and war. We could go on. But sin, we're told very clearly in the scripture, doesn't just contain within itself. Sin leads to death. And in Genesis, we read that as soon as they sinned, God placed a curse upon the world. And the world, the world is, <laughs> the world is pride rock before Simba's return. Do you know what I mean by that? Scorched and barren. Because the images of God, the kings and queens that God intended to be stewards of the earth, have given up their stewardship. You and me. The world is the castle grounds in Beauty and the Beast before the magic started to fall from the sky. Overgrown with thorns and crumbling. We are... I have great news this morning. You ready? There's the good news this morning. We are, every single one of us, all of us, we're returning to the dust. That's not really good news. I was joking. It's not meant, you're not meant to receive that as good news. That's meant to be something that gnaws at your soul. We are returning to the dust and the world is along with us. Now you take everything that could be described as sin and everything that could be described as death. All the guilt, all the ruin that is a part of our experience. And Isaiah just sums it up. He calls it, the former things. There is a day where all of that is just going to be a former thing. That's no longer part of our experience. He won't even name it because there is coming a day when all of it will be irrelevant. It won't even be a memory. It'll be completely forgotten. And in its place will be something new. A new heavens and a new earth. But thirdly, The word kingdom also describes the effects. I mean, what exactly is this new thing? What is the effects of God's work in the world? So God is taking us somewhere, and what he's doing is bigger than you can possibly imagine. But the third thing is, it will be both like and unlike our present experience. 
It's going to be both like and unlike what we presently experience. Now, we should really change our vocabulary here. We're, we're going to talk about, well, well, let me say this. We, we talk often about going to heaven when we die, but that's not the language the Bible uses, actually. Instead, the language of the Bible is that what comes after this life is actually the new heavens and the new earth. And that's important because we're meant to be inspired by the prophet's vision of the future. And most people struggle with that. And I think it's because the future in heaven, as we normally describe it, sounds so dissimilar to life on earth. There's no connection. And so we really can't emotionally become invested in it. I mean, on earth right now, in our life right now, on this, on this rock floating through the universe, here on earth, we have music and football and I'm, I'm all, I mean, obviously, I'm all excited about football now, you know, right? September, not so much. November's been good, so football, right? And Thanksgiving, and Christmas, and mountain views, and beaches to walk, and cities to explore, and chocolate-covered strawberries. And add, it, add to the list your own stuff. All of that we get on the earth, but in heaven, what? I mean, what is heaven? If you, if you grew up watching Bugs Bunny like I did... It, we float around on clouds playing harps all day long. And that's part of the problem. Who would choose that over this? But here's, we see this language, the new heavens and the new earth. And that language of the new earth means that all of the best things that we love and enjoy, they won't be taken away from us. Actually, they're going to be even better there than they are here. I mean, can you imagine that? Can you imagine the Rocky Mountains when they've been made new? Can you imagine what a plant city strawberry right out of the field will taste like there? I mean, the very best vacation of your life will feel like a preschool field trip to the Kennedy Space Station, which is purgatory on Earth. <laughs> if you've not done it yet, you have kids, it's coming, I promise. You should sign up to be a chaperone, that's my encouragement to you. The very best relationship that you enjoy now will feel shallow and silly compared to the knowing that we will share. In this language, the new heavens and the new earth means that our then will be like our now, but without all the bad stuff that, that's a part of our now. But also be unlike how things are now. It's gonna, there's gonna be lots of ways it's going to be unlike that too. And now we get to the bulk of the text because the image here of the new heavens and new earth in verses 17 uh, and beyond is replaced uh, by the image of a city beginning in verse 18. You see there he describes Jerusalem and, and not just Jerusalem, the physical city, but Jerusalem as an image of what God means for the whole world to be. A city, Jerusalem was the city where God and his people uh, lived together, God's city. That's what you have here. And remember, in Revelation 21, it's the same thing. John sees the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven to the earth. And so Jerusalem is an image of all of that. And it's God delighting over his people gathered into the new Jerusalem. So if sin is the disruption of the relationship between God and man, here you have the promise of the opposite, the relationship restored and God now overflowing with joy in his people and the people echoing back God's joy in them with their own joy in him. And the question quickly becomes this, that if sin leads to death, well then, what happens when sin is forgiven and atoned for? In C.S. Lewis's word, death begins to work in reverse. That's what you see here from the middle of verses 19 all the way to the end of the chapter. Eugene Peterson said, instead is a gospel word. I tend to agree. And what follows here is a series of insteads, a series of reversals. 
that the Lord promises will be a part of the transition of the world to the new heavens and the new earth. Now, each deserves its own treatment. Most people don't even know this stuff is in the Bible. But we have to be quick. Okay, we have to be really quick here. It's, it's, it really is an all or nothing thing. We talked about this. We have a preaching meeting where we talked about this. And really, it's either you got to like dig in here or you got to kind of be big picture. And I've chosen to go big picture for the sake of time. But gosh, it's hard. This is super hard for me to just zoom over this so quickly. But here, Jesus is king, right? Jesus is king. Okay, can I? Jesus is king. You with me? Okay, we believe that. I'm just making sure I'm establishing that we believe that. And he's reigning and ruling in heaven now. Here, these are the changes. These are the changes that he's making. Joy instead of sadness. Verse 18 and 19. Just, let's just read it. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. All the sad things are coming untrue. The happily ever after is on his way. One day there will be no more tears. Not until then, but one day it's coming. Not only joy instead of sadness, life instead of death. Verse 20, look there. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days. Is there a greater sadness on the earth? It's not going to be a part of our experience there. Or an old man who does not fill out his days. So no more sickness, no more pandemics, no more emergency room visits, no more funerals. Life instead of death. But there's justice and security instead of oppression. Verse 21 and 22, they shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall be the days of my people be. Now the strong take from the weak, but not forever. There's a rectification coming. Meaning and fulfillment in work instead of vanity. Verse 23, my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain. Now I read that and think no more budget meetings right? No more layoff strategies. Meaning and fulfillment. No more thorns and thistles. No more, I will not have to weed my garden in heaven. Praise the Lord, right? Blessing instead of curse. Verses 23 and 24, they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord. Curse is all about the absence of God, the vacuum that's left by God's absence, but notice the readiness of God to act and hear. He says, before they call, I will answer. While they're yet speaking, I will hear. He'll be so attentive. We won't even have to ask him for things because he'll know. Personal transformation instead of stuckness. The wolf and the lamb, I know that's not even a word, but bear with me, stuckness. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. Okay, now think about that. What usually happens when the wolf and the lamb get together? (laughs) It is the wolf's natural instinct to hunt the lamb, not to graze alongside of the lamb. It's the lion's instinct to eat the ox, not the straw. So the lesson here is that God is able and he one day will override our fallen nature. You might feel stuck. You might be so sick to death of you. But the Lord promises here that he can turn you into something else, not just a better version of yourself, but something new. Like the lion who can learn to eat straw instead of the ox. I might actually like broccoli in heaven. That's exciting to me. Who knows? Personal transformation. You'll be unstuck. We got a good triumphing instead of evil. You see there, the dust shall be the serpent's food. That is just straight out of Genesis chapter three. He is going to crush the head of the serpent. 
and evil will be no more. And good will triumph and last forever. And peace instead of violence. They shall not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain. Now, it's a little bit overwhelming, isn't it? Is it, is it overwhelming? All of that, it's a lot of information to take in. And I think that's exactly the point. That is, that is just a brief snapshot of the effects of, the, of, of when the kingdom comes to the earth. But lastly, this word kingdom. So we see that there's a telos and there's a scope and there's effects. But then there's also the agents of God's work in the world. God is taking the world somewhere. It's bigger than we can possibly imagine. It's both like and unlike what we know now. And the last thing is that you and I have a part to play. Now, this is not explicit in the text, but it is in the whole of Isaiah 40 through 66. Israel was meant to be God's instrument, his missionary instrument, as were we. But they failed, as we have. And out of their failure came the hope of a singular person who would do what they had not done. Now, this is really going to be what we talk about for the next few weeks in Advent. He's called by many names here, this singular person, this hero, this rescuer, this messiah who would come. He was the king. He was the servant. He was the anointed messenger. We know, of course, all of those images throughout Isaiah's prophecy point us to Jesus Christ. It was his life of obedience and death upon the cross for our sins that can make us a joy and a gladness to God. Jesus is the one who can repair our relationship with our maker. He was the eternal beloved son, eternally loved by his father. And his obedient life and his obedient death can confer upon all who trust in him the same, same status with God. He was raised from the dead to overthrow death. And out of his life flows life. Resurrection is our future, right? All of these things are gospel promises to us. He is seated in heaven. As we talk about this morning, he is reigning over the world. And he's got his foot on evil's neck. And that is the gospel message. And Christianity's gospel, let's not forget, that's important. So look at the language in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 66. The Lord says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? All these things my hand has made, but this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. So God's saying this. He's saying the city that I'm making, this new Jerusalem that's coming, it's my building project, not yours. I'm a God of grace. You don't work for me, I work for you. That's how this relationship with me works. God is not looking for the strong and the powerful and the talented to join him in his building project in the world. Look at what he says. What does he want? What's he, what's, what gets his attention? Who is the person that he regards? He says he wants the humble, the contrite, those who tremble at his word. That is the person who he regards. That's who, who gets his attention. So chapter 66 verse 2 describes the poor in spirit. It's a person who's been humbled by their own moral failures so that they no longer put any confidence in their own strength or their own plans or their own words. They don't live with a hero complex. They re- they're repenting of all their hero behavior. Because they're amazed by God's grace. Their whole lives, they live by what God says, not what they feel. They tremble at his word, right? The fear of the Lord, this profound wonder is at the center of their lives and it acts like a preventative against the natural self-centeredness and hubris that's part of every single one of us. That's the kind of person that God uses to carry out his purposes in the world. Here's an important thing for you to remember. When you hear this word kingdom, when you talk about the kingdom, when when you read about the kingdom, remember this, we don't build the kingdom. We don't bring the kingdom. We receive the kingdom. It's a gift. 
We are never further from what the Bible means by kingdom than when we're trying to use our power or money or influence to bring it into the world. The kingdom does not come through human sacrifice, excuse me, through human strength and achievement. It comes through humility and self-sacrifice and love. There's a passage in 1 Corinthians 3 that I think is so important. And uh, I'm, I'm really rounding third towards home here. And it says this. It says, whatever you try to build with your own strength. I'm summarizing. But whatever you try to build with your own strength as a monument to your own name. Paul says in the end it will burn. It's going to burn up. But whatever you build on the foundation of the gospel. Whatever you build in view of Jesus' sufficiency. His love for you. His work for you. Not your work for him. Whatever you build for his glory and not your own. Whatever you build motivated by those those things, it will go on with you into the new heavens and the new earth and be celebrated forever. He says, if you do your work like that, no matter what your work is, you do not labor in vain. If you go to work with a sense of meaning and purpose, with eternal perspective, you're already working in the new creation. So N.T. Wright says this, and it's just encouraged me. He says, you are not oiling the wheels of a machine that's about to roll over a cliff. You're not restoring a great painting that's shortly going to be thrown into the fire. You're not planting roses in a garden that's about to be dug up for a building site. You are accomplishing something that will become in due course part of God's new world. Every act of love, gratitude, and kindness, every work of art or music inspired by the love of God, every minute spent teaching a severely handicapped child to read or walk, every act of care and nurture or comfort and support from one's fellow human beings, every prayer, all spirit-led teaching, Every deed that spreads the gospel builds up the church, embraces and embodies holiness rather than corruption, and makes the name of Jesus honored in the world. All of this will find its way through the resurrecting power of God into the new creation that God will one day make. What we do in Christ and by the Spirit in the present world is not wasted. It will last all the way into God's new world. Isn't that great? Well, one last thing. When. Is what Isaiah is speaking about here the future or is it already beginning to happen now? This is an important point to make here at the end. Jesus is reigning in heaven and one day he will come again. And when he comes again, the glorious future will finally be fully here. And there are things here that will not be fully experienced until the consummation. But, then, but, but, but until then, until that day, here's what the Bible teaches The future, because Jesus is the king in heaven now, the future that he has promised is pushing its way back into the present. It's already beginning to take shape in small ways, not among the elite, not in Washington, D.C., not in circles of power. It's in other places. And so we need to read this through a certain lens. And here's how I would describe it to you. With the ultimate hope of Jesus' second coming, we will not see this kind of transformation in the world until Jesus comes again. But to the degree that we begin to trust him and not in ourselves, to the degree that we work in his strength and for his glory, conforming our lives and our relationships to what he says in his word, to the degree that we do that, that future will begin to break into the present among us. And it'll be like a preview of what's to come. It'll be like the appetizer's before the big meal. So what does it mean for us this morning to believe and to belong to this vision of what God's doing in the world? Let's be really honest. Our lives are orchestrated around habits of consumption. 
We are trained powerfully to see ourselves as consumers first with needs to be met. And we approach all of life, relationships, church, with that lens. But this word kingdom means that we have to change the lenses out. The word kingdom means that you are more than just a person with needs to be met. You have capacities and gifts. You've been created. And if you've been saved, you've been redeemed and given gifts by God. And you're meant to use whatever you have to serve some greater purpose, to see God's kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Those are our marching orders. And as we go out with him, this is our anthem to get you into the Christmas spirit. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground, for he comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Amen? Pray with me, would you? So, Father, we do ask that you would come and work now in us, speak to us, encourage us, shape in us a sense of holy vocation and calling in light of what you're doing in the world. And it doesn't mean we, we stop doing what we're doing and we all become pastors. God forbid. That's, we have enough pastors. In, well, we actually don't have enough pastors in the world. But it means we take whatever work we're doing and we do it from a different angle. We do it with a different hope. We do it with a different set of motivations. We do it in such a way, building upon the foundation of the gospel, trusting in your power and your great love for us and not in ourselves. And we do it so that even now we might join you in this moment in the remaking of the entire world so that everything that makes up our lives now might go with us and be celebrated and joined forever and ever and ever. But it requires a radical reorientation about the way we think about ourselves and our lives. So help us. Walk us away from our self-pity and our consumerism and the ways that we've just given in to the spirit of the age to think of life as a self-construction process and to belong to things as long as they affirm us. But as soon as there's a disagreement or, or we're be, we are asked to conform to a standard, we're out. Oh, there's just so much work we need for you to do with this people right here in this room in this moment today to make us different than that so that we might find that we have the resources that we need to join you in this great work. Thank you. What a, what a, what a vision of the future that is ours, but remind us that that, that that future is coming true right now among us as we walk by your spirit. So help us to keep in step with your spirit, to hear from you, to tremble at whatever word we hear, and then to go with humility and, and contrite in heart to follow after you. So we sing now to consecrate ourselves to that great work. We sing now as a response, saying, yes, Lord, we jump in, we're here. Your life is our life. Your mission is our mission. We're going to join you. Make that true for us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're anything like me, you might find that hard to do because there's so many reasons to give in to the sadness that still pervades the world. And so we know that that is our future. What a great, uh, merciful providence of God that uh, over the next four or five weeks, we get lots of practice in doing that, right? That's really what this time of year is about, beginning with this next uh, Thursday with Thanksgiving, that we are a people who declare that there is a feast that is coming, and when we gather with family and friends, uh, we are practicing uh, for that day. We're getting, our, we're getting our stomachs ready for the food that we'll eat on that day, right, with all the turkey and stuff that we're going to eat. But as you think about family and friends, don't neglect also that we get a chance. This is a high time 
in the year for us as a church where we have really uh, we have lots of services together and whatnot. Wednesday night, we didn't say at seven at six thirty. Sorry, we're going to have a Thanksgiving service. Please come before you celebrate with your families on Thursday. Come celebrate with this family, uh, and 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 uh, feast with us as well. And then throughout Advent, it seems like our attendance dips, and I never know why because I love that time of year. It's my favorite time of year. So don't miss church over the next few weeks because we're not good at this, and we need as much practice as we can. And this is the best time of year to practice that. Uh, but so as you go now, go uh, with the promise that he will give you his spirit to help what you just sing about become more and more a reality in your life now. Uh, and so go uh, feasting for his sake uh, in the coming week. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. Go in his peace. Have a great Thanksgiving week.